You are listening to a Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship audio presentation. We're glad that you're with us today. I don't think we got everyone introduced in the first light hour, but at the conclusion of our service, we will uh, welcome our guests again, and we're glad that you're here. I hope you have a study guide. We've had uh, some problem with the study guides going out on the email. Uh, We're working on those things, and the website is making progress for the church. But if you look around and see someone who doesn't have one, uh, particularly a guest, you might share with them. We've had some in the foyer and some over in the fellowship hall. Such were some of you. And from 1 Corinthians 6.11, Such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified. Now, you might be asking, why do we have so much Scripture in these lessons? Uh, Dozens of verses. Well, that's because what God has to say is very important. What I have to say is not that important. Also, your study guide contains some background material that we don't normally have time to get to uh, during the service. So I would encourage you to uh, look that material over and look up the references in Scripture Uh, before the service, if you have opportunity, or afterward. Today we come to a subject of utmost importance to the Christian, the doctrine of sanctification. Your perspective on sanctification is going to determine how you see yourself and also how you see others. Here's a story. Selena was determined this morning... Don still wanted nothing to do with it, but she was going to church that day, even if she had to carry the kids on her back. Though the boys had not protested all that much, dressing them took longer than expected. What few nice things they had were outgrown, and in the end had to settle for Tommy's worn-out blue jeans. The dress Selena put on was the only thing she had for any such occasion. As they lined up in the hall to leave, the obvious problem was shoes. All the footwear looked pretty tired. But that couldn't matter. It was time to go. They could still make it on time, but Selena had hoped to be there early. She hoped to see things the way they were laid out before the service began. The walk was not far and rather pleasant along the way. The church seemed a friendly building right beside their neighborhood. It was one of her favorite parts of moving there. Now she had settled down enough to at least visit. Stepping up to the huge doors, she wondered what they were getting into. It was a truly beautiful building. Nothing like she remembered Grandma's church, the little wood frame church in the beautiful setting of a grove of old trees. But this was a grand church, stone walls, neatly cut uh, lawn, healthy shrubs. Everything had a sense of being well cared for. The service still did not begin as they walked in the vestibule. Just inside, Selena and the two boys met a friendly man who greeted them as guests. He asked if he might help them find a seat. She said, no, we will find a seat. They moved down a few rows and saw an opening. They almost sat down, but a lady behind reached over to let them know that those seats were taken. By that time, Bobby didn't want to move, so Selena smiled as best she could as she dragged the boys a few more rows forward. She found three seats there in the middle of a pew. She wondered if the usher could have done any better. The service began with Selena preoccupied with her own self-consciousness. 
Thankfully, the boys were quiet in awe of the sanctuary's majestic trappings. The music was nice, and she knew one or two of the songs. The prayers, in other words, were not easy to understand, but her senses were already too filled to notice. The sermon was good. She liked the preacher with a big smile and strong voice. At one point in his lesson, he made a comment about sin with which she strongly agreed. Like Grandma years ago, Selena shouted, Amen. And it seemed that a hundred faces turned toward her. Even Tommy noticed. Selena did not remember much of the service. The boys became fidgety. It was all she could do to keep them marginally quiet. When it was over, she tried to get the boys out quickly. Once or twice she thought of introducing herself, but the faces close by were always turned away. It seemed as though everyone had someone else they needed to talk to. When Selena and the boys made it to the door, she turned them away from the parking lot side of the building to walk the longer way home. She shushed the boys when they pointed this out. They didn't mind much, though. They were happy to be freed from the all-too-quiet hour. As she entered the house, Don called out, How did it go? Before answering, Selena thought, Maybe it wasn't such a bad idea that Don stayed at home. Well, that's our introduction. Now, we want to try to visualize this morning the plight of the non-Christian, the light of conversion, and the fight for sanctification. I like Louis Burkhoff's definition in his Manual of Christian Doctrine, sanctification may be defined as that gracious and continuous operation of the Holy Spirit by which he purifies the sinner from the pollution of sin, renews his whole nature in the image of God, and enables him to perform good works. The grace to do good works comes from God. The good works come from us. In Ephesians 2.10, God says that he has prepared good works beforehand that we might do them. When and where does sanctification take place? By the way, we need to mention that these good works have nothing to do with salvation. We are talking about from the point of conversion henceforth, as we will see. Sanctification is taking place at conversion, and then it goes on continuously in the life of a believer. The root of the word sanctify in the Old Testament means to cut or to separate. The word is used to mean holy or made holy. Some have included the idea of shining brightly as with the Shekinah glory of God's holiness. You can think of Moses with his face glowing, coming down from having been in the presence of God. Both of these meanings are incorporated into New Testament sanctification. A believer is set apart for God and his service, and that believer might shine with holiness. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That means the Christian is to be separated in his heart from any thoughts of something unclean or impure or polluted by sin, and he is to be wholly devoted to savoring and serving a holy God. Would you say that uh, you truly delight in serving a holy God? Or is holiness something that makes you feel a little bit puritanical? 
kind of an unnecessary burden out of the Old Testament of some rigidness that you have to bear. Make no mistake, sanctification is holiness, not just morality or purity in and of itself. Through sheer willpower, folks can change their lives in some ways, but you can't become holy without the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Sanctification is progressive. It begins at conversion by faith. Now, here is the word meaning set apart. When we come to Christ, we are set apart to serve Him all the days of our lives. Acts 26.18, in this passage, Paul is sharing with King Agrippa what Christ told him he needed to do. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Who have been sanctified by faith in me. But it doesn't stop with conversion, at which time we're set apart. It goes on to phase two. All through life, we're confronted with spiritual warfare which is waged by grace through faith. Spiritual warfare, we are not referring to exercising demons or slaying some Frank Peretti dragon. In fact, um, I would have a suggestion those things very, very well may be real, and they are. But I would suggest that we let Christ fight the demons and we go to work on fighting sin because there is plenty of sin to be fought in our lives. Now we're thinking about sanctification, meaning being made holy. Philippians 3:13, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then another verse, 1 Peter 2:11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Well, is it a warfare? Here is Bishop J.C. Ryle writing in the late 1800s. True Christianity is a good fight, he says. Let me examine this matter and open it out in order. I dare not pass the subject and leave it unnoticed. I want no one to begin the life of a Christian soldier without counting the cost. I would not keep back from anyone that if he would be holy and see the Lord, he must fight, and that the Christian fight, and that the Christian fight, though spiritual, is real and severe. It needs courage, boldness, and perseverance. But I want my readers to know that there is abundant encouragement if they will only begin the battle. The scripture does not call the Christian fight a good fight without reason and cause. No doubt it's a war in which there are tremendous struggles, agonizing conflicts, wounds, bruises, watchings, fastings, and fatigue. But still every believer without exception is more than conqueror through him that loved him. No soldiers of Christ are ever lost, missing, or left dead on the battlefield. Not one shall be found lacking of the words of our great captain of them whom thou which of them which thou hast given me i have lost none
Well, he goes on to write a good bit about sanctification. So this process of becoming less like my old self and more like Christ goes on through my life. And then when I come down to the end of my life, sanctification is completed. No more battle. It's completed at death for our souls. Hebrews 12:22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Just men made perfect. Sanctification is completed at the moment that we step off this planet. Or, if Christ returns before you die, and when He returns, even if you're in heaven, sanctification will be completed for the body. This is an encouraging passage from Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. What a mighty time that will be. So we see three phases of sanctification. The new life in Christ and equipping for the fight. Then Christian living throughout your life, the battle going on. And then together with Christ at the end of the war. Now let's look at those again in the light of some other scripture. New life in Christ equipping for the fight. Paul says, speaking of himself, 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. God gives us His grace for us to be able to fight this battle. He also gives us the full armor that He has provided for us. But here's the question. Is that grace that He gives us to live a life of ease or is it to fight this battle against sin? I think we will see according to the Scripture that it must be the latter. Christian living and the fight. 1 Timothy 6.12 Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight? Did you say fight? Wait a minute, I didn't sign up for any fight. Neither did John Newton who wrote our hymn Amazing Grace. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. I hope that in some favored hour at once He'd answer my request and by His love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. A little reference there to Jonah's gourd vine that the Lord withered, do you remember? 
Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest see thine all in me. I don't like that poem too much. Do you? And yet there are these inward trials that is part of the battle that we are fighting. What is the goal of sanctification? What is the goal of this entire process of salvation? It is sanctification. And the goal of sanctification is holiness, conformity to the image of Christ. As we look at some of these scripture references, you'll see that there is a good bit with regard to being holy and holiness, because this is the goal of our sanctification, conformity to the image of Christ. First Peter, excuse me, Colossians 3:10, and having put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, that is our goal to be conformed to the image of the one who created us. That is Christ. And then 1 Peter 2.24, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness. And Colossians 1.22, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. Now, when I come to Christ, I am justified, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. But if you look underneath my robe, you might still see some meanness and some selfishness and some other things that are going to have to be dealt with along the way. And that is sanctification that takes care of those things. Then at the end, we're together with Christ. It's the end of the war. Sanctification is completed in its fullness at the end of our lives. Paul talks about that to young Timothy. Paul realizes that he's almost there. And it's a joyful thing to him. For me to live is Christ, he says, to die is gain. 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved His appearing. And that would be the spirit of just men made perfect. Well, we see the plight of the non-Christian. Here is a man held in captive, held as a captive in the stronghold of sin. Why do you think he's being held as a prisoner? Well, he has committed crime, and he has been pronounced guilty, and in fact, he is on death row. But here's the strange thing. Although he is incarcerated, and he's suffering mental and physical deprivation, he thinks down inside that he's free now to live the good life that he always wanted to live. What do we call that? Delusional thinking. 
He even has a disease in his body that's going to bring him to a painful death. But he doesn't realize any of that. His mind has been affected. The non-Christian is free to do what he likes. Did you realize that? Do you believe in free will? The non-Christian is free to do what he likes. But the non-Christian is not free to like what he ought to like because he is a prisoner of sin, according to the Scripture. He may do some good things in the eyes of the local people, but the Scripture says there is none good, not one who seeks God. So he's not doing any good that would make himself pleasing to God. He is a prisoner of sin. Really, here we're seeing him when he first went into the stronghold, but he was taken down to a filthy dungeon. And he's sitting down there in the dark in a straitjacket, and he's singing a little song about how happy he is. He just didn't realize his condition. But something's coming. The light of conversion. Suddenly the light shines into the dungeon and the prisoner sees his squalid condition. Charles Wesley to the rescue in the description of what takes place down in the dungeon. And can it be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. God touches the prisoner's heart so he's moved from the natural state in which he doesn't understand to the enabled state. He can now see himself as he is, a lost reprobate, fast bound in sin and nature's night. And when he realizes the shape he's in, he cries out to Jesus in his predicament, and Christ answers his cry, and he is converted. His chains fall off, and he walks out of the prison. At that moment of conversion, he rose, went forth, and followed the Lord. His justification took place at that moment, as well as phase one of his sanctification. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. At conversion, you were justified, and at that moment you were pronounced not guilty. Notice that we're talking about past tense here. You were sanctified, you were justified. Here is perhaps the best illustration of how phase one of sanctification in the past leads into phase two of sanctification right now and into the future. It's the battle for sanctification. On today, February 19th, 67 years ago in 1945, 30,000 Marines stormed the beaches of Iwo Jima on the first attack of the Japanese home islands. It was hoped that 72 days of naval bombardment would soften the enemy fortifications on the island. There was little resistance on the beaches, but then the real fighting began as the Marines assaulted a network of bunkers and underground tunnels, 11 miles of tunnels and hidden artillery. And they might be fighting someone up in front of them and all of a sudden the enemy was shooting at their back. 
Five days later, the American flag was raised on Mount Suribachi, the first foreign flag to fly on Japanese soil. Here's Joe Rosenthal's picture that he took of the flag being raised. Now, when the Marines planted our flag there, there was a change of government on the island, exactly like when Christ comes into a person's life. There's a change from anarchy and maybe the dictatorship of the devil to theocracy. When Lucy and I worked with inner city children back in Birmingham, we used to sing a little song. Faith is the flag flown high over the castle of my life because the king is in residence there. Well, if the king is in residence in your heart, there's going to be new government. There are going to be some changes and you're going to have a new source of motivation and power to be able to clear out these pockets of resistance. This is what happened when you were sanctified phase one. The flag went up. The reign of sin over your life was broken, Romans six twelve. But there's much work yet to be accomplished. There are fortified bunkers. There are strongholds of resistance to be cleared out. Some are deeply entrenched. Once Christ comes into a person's life, it's just the beginning. His position is changed. He's now adopted into God's family. But his condition doesn't look so good right at that point. And there's still some pockets of resistance there that are going to be rooted out as time goes on. It's through the process of sanctification phase two that we're going to attack these strongholds of sin, bad habits, wrong thinking, all those kinds of things that the enemy would like to come in and use against us. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Sanctification is God's way of dealing with sin in the life of a Christian. When the flag went up, the outcome of the Battle of Iwo Jima was certain due to overwhelmingly uh, overwhelming allied superiority in arms and numbers, but it took 30 more days and a cost of 26,000 lives to clear out the enemy resistance. And that was just one battle in a long protracted war. Bill, you need to thank Alan's dad when you get home for this uh, sermon illustration that he helped to get for us. Japanese second lieutenant Hiru Onada holed up on Lubang Island in the Philippines and finally surrendered in 1974, 29 years after the war was over. And before he would give up then, they had to bring his aged commander to the island to tell him to strike arms. The war was ended. For us, that happens when we die or when our commander, the Lord Jesus Christ, returns to end the strife and pronounce judgment on the enemy. When the king takes residence in the life of a prisoner, a change of government takes place. And here would be some of the spiritual and mental rehabilitation that we get. We read, Paul said, I labored, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. And God, through His grace, enables us to do what He has called on us to do. Well, there's a new awareness of sin. It seemed that our man didn't even notice these things before. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. 
Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its Creator. All those things we used to do, but we didn't think anything about it. The sin that came out of our mouths or some thought or whatever it may have been. But then when Christ rules in the heart, there is a new awareness. But not only that, there is a new attitude towards sin. You used to maybe even enjoy some of the things that now would be repulsive to you. By the way, if problems are rooted in sin, then there is hope. But if homosexuality is something that you're just born with, then too bad. You're stuck with that condition. But if it's something that's rooted in sin, you can get the sin out of your life through the process of sanctification. So we have a new attitude, Romans 6.20. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness, What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Do you see the change in attitude here? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, there's our word again, and the result is eternal life. And then in 2 Corinthians 7, 11, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. Perspective has changed now that conversion has taken place and sanctification is going on. You not only get a new awareness of sin, a new attitude towards sin, you get a new ability to deal with sin. By God's grace, our man now has strength to resist temptation whatever that temptation might be. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, that would be things of dishonor, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the Master, prepared for every good work, Paul writes again to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. Then, of course, the verse in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, if God tells me to cleanse myself, that presupposes that I would be able to cleanse myself. And certainly He gives us the power to do what He calls us to do. Phase 2 sanctification, it's continuous throughout life for the Christian. Several other verses here, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Romans 8.13 If you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Romans 12.1 and 2 I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. A word of warning now. There are those who say that you can accept Christ's sanctification right now 
by faith. And you don't have to be in a war. In fact, if you even act like you're in a war, uh, that would be legalism. Now, it is true that you can be fighting the enemy in the power of the flesh, but the perspective of instant sanctification in phase two is very deceptive. And it's a little bit like instant gratification. You just don't find a lot of instant gratification in this life unless you take some shortcuts to some things that God has said are not good. You are set apart instantly at the time of conversion, but the being made holy part is going to be war, spiritual war. So put on your full armor so that you can stand against the enemy. And when the attack comes, don't be surprised because we're promised that it's coming. There's some words used in the New Testament to describe this battle that we're in. Fight, strive, stand fast, give diligence, wrestle, run, walk, labor, seek, pursue, press, flee, put off, put on, follow after, persevere, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now you can see that these are all action words and we don't want to be missing in action when the smoke clears on the battlefield. Now something else is happening in the life of our man. You'll notice that as he matures in Christ, we see less and less of those little strongholds, those fortresses in his life, and more and more of Christ represented by the little crosses. And that process goes on throughout life. You can bombard the enemy by going to retreats, listening to recorded sermons, attending a revival service, rededicating your life to Christ, but you won't be sanctified until you do exactly what the Marines had to do on Iwo Jima. Go from stronghold to stronghold, pillbox to cave to bunker, and root out the individual enemies as you go. That is a good description of sanctification. And as you conquer major strongholds, you'll find that you're stronger in Christ and these little weaker things don't nag you as much as they used to. But the conflict never ends in this life. Here's another description. Therefore, since we also, we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ ran a good race. In His strength, we may run a good race. The testimony is that Christ died to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we could be cleansed. He didn't die so that we could continue in unrighteousness. Now here's the perspective of most Christians. See if this would be yours. Save from hell on my way to heaven. But that's not the biblical perspective. The biblical perspective is save from sin on my way to holiness. Heaven is the reward. Praise the Lord for heaven. Sanctification is the goal. Now you see that these little fortresses are becoming less and less 
as this guy becomes sanctified, moving down the line to your right there. There is more of Christ and less of the old nature. You see at some point down at the bottom there, Hebrews 12:23, he might just step off this planet. He might die. He might be killed in an automobile accident. And at that point, he falls in with the spirits of just men made perfect and his sanctification is ended. But in this life, that includes all of us here today, we're still fighting the battle as we move down toward more of Christ and less of the old nature. What is a stronghold? A stronghold is a mindset or a way of thinking that is opposed to Scripture. And strongholds are just habitual ways of thinking. And I don't even evaluate. I just, it clicks in and I just do whatever the habit calls for. Those are the things that have to be removed from the life. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now there are two ways that the enemy wants to use your supposed sanctification against you. He'll take you coming or he'll get you going. It doesn't matter to him. The first is this, instead of sanctified humility, he'd like to see sanctimonious hypocrisy. Instead of sanctified humility, sanctimonious hypocrisy. The Pharisees were pretty good at that. Do you remember the Pharisee who went down to the temple to pray? And there was a publican there, a tax collector. And oh, he started praying, Lord, I thank you I'm not like other men, not like this guy. This guy's an adulterer, an evildoer, and he names a bunch of things. And that's what we're thinking about, the Pharisee. Or the people in the church where Selena attended. Now suppose if you're in um, this position right above Romans 8.13 and somebody comes in who looks very different than you. You don't know where they are because you can't see the bars. They might be a non-Christian. They might not have had the light that we have had. What is my attitude toward that person? If they come to church and they walk right in with the whatever it might be that they happen to be wearing. And they look very different. And they look at us and they wonder, what's going on in this building? What is this all about? Now, there are a lot of things to think about with regard to that topic. We're not just selling out to the world, trying to look like to the world, to make things comfortable for everyone who might come to church. And yet, there needs to be agape love. Well, that brings us to the second thing Satan will use. He'll want us to be a hypocrite, but if he can't get that, he'll try what I call reverse sanctification. And here's what he says, the more you can be like the world, the more sanctified and mature you really are. The more you can look like the world, 
the more sanctified you are because it shows everybody your freedom. It might be the fashion world, immodesty, the androgynous look, the military look, the sheer look. He doesn't care. He just wants you to be like the world without evaluating anything. Well, the more we can participate in the world's activities, the more sanctified we are. We're not legalistic. We can do almost anything the world can do except some really gross things like mud wrestling or something like that. Is that what we're about? And then the more of the world's entertainment we can enjoy, the greater the freedom we have attained. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Reverse sanctification. You can cuss and fuss and stomp and spit as a lifestyle and it doesn't even matter because you're already sanctified. That is wrong. According to that system of belief, you become more like the world than becoming more like Christ, which is the goal of sanctification. Well, what about you this morning? What kind of enemy is plaguing you now that could have been dealt with 12 years ago? Or here's a more important question. What kind of negative thoughts, bad habits, wrong talk might there be that needs to be exterminated right now before it lags on? Before it influences many people who are watching and listening? One of the most effective lies that Satan will tell you is that you can indulge in wrong thoughts and it won't affect anybody. And anytime you get ready, you can lay them aside. They kind of stick. Worry, inferiority, self-pity, discouragement, depression, bitterness, covetousness, and greed, envy and jealousy, fear, lust, guilt, negative attitudes, selfishness, hypocrisy, a critical spirit, a judgmental spirit, judgmental attitude. Put off wrong thoughts. Get a new attitude by meditating on Scripture. Put on some good thoughts in place of the old thoughts. That's sanctification. Hebrews 12.14 Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Is the King in resonance in your heart this morning? Or do you need a personal change of government? We all know we need a change of government in Washington. But I'm thinking about right inside the heart, a personal change of government. It takes coming to Christ, acknowledging that I have the need to change. Asking Him to come into my life, to forgive my sin, to take control of things, to start removing the old and bringing in the new. Oh, what a refreshing experience. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You this morning that we're not in this battle by ourselves. We thank You that You are our commander. We thank You You've never lost anyone on the battlefield. Thank You that You have given us weapons with which to fight. Thank You for the grace that You give us to take captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. Lord, I pray for someone here this morning who needs a change of government that they might come to You, perhaps for the first time in conversion, getting out of the prison of sin, or maybe just to be renewed 
through this process of sanctification. Lord, you know that it's not an easy battle that we fight in our culture. We pray that you would give strength and insight to moms and dads who are rearing children, to grandparents, to the leadership of this church. And we ask, Lord, that you would keep us close to you so that we might be walking in the way that you would have us walk. Thank you for this amazing Bible that tells us the truth. We pray that we might live the truth, that we might tell the truth, that we might stand for truth in our lives in everything that we do and say. We ask these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You have been listening to a Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship audio presentation.